This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. My usual co-host Mark Rotella is out this week, so I'm here on my own to bring you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Seamus Omani discusses his new book, The Way We Die Now, The View from Medicine's Frontline. Then PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed recaps San Diego Comic-Con. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD Bookscan. And joining me is PW Features Editor Carolyn Juris. Hi, Carolyn. Hey, Rose. Very nice to have you here. Thank you, as always, for filling in. We very much appreciate it, because otherwise, I'd just be reading off this list and no one would want to hear it. Nobody wants that. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. And it's always nice to have a chat with you. What's happening uh, on the hardcover nonfiction bestseller list this week? So we've got a couple new books this week. Um, debuting at number two is Devil's Bargain by Joshua Green. Uh, that book, to give you an idea of what it's about, is subtitled Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming of the Presidency. Green is a senior national correspondent for Bloomberg Newsweek, and he focuses on politics. And he's been watching these two for a while in uh, October of 2015. So just as things were starting to heat up with the election, he wrote a cover story for the magazine called This Man is the Most Dangerous Political Operative in America, all about Bannon. Mm. The cover of the book, they look quite alike, actually. Um, huh, interesting. People in radio land cannot see that, but they have very similar hairdos. We do not have a review of the book yet. I believe that is coming next week. But it's been getting some good notice, and uh, even Breitbart, of which Bannon is a famous alum, did not really have anything bad to say about the book. They were very happy to take part in um, President Trump's ascendancy. All right. And uh, what else is happening? There's not really a lot of movement on the list this week. It's a typically quiet summer week. We've got uh, number 23. We've got Perennial Seller by Ryan Holiday. This is a book about selling your creative wares. Mm. Uh, we reviewed it pretty favorably. We said uh, Holiday follows in a long tradition in the self-help genre bringing a contemporary sensibility to the subject of making and marketing creative work. His injunctions include be clear about what you're doing and what it needs. Think long-term, not short-term. Pay attention to detail. Be open to criticism and test ideas. So, you know, pretty sensible if standard stuff. Uh, we do say he has a tendency to drift into buzzwords like and cliche like be your own CEO. Mm. But he builds, our review says, a compelling roadmap to sustainable creativity. Sounds very useful. Yeah, perhaps something for artists to take a look at. Well, there's not much happening on the hardcover fiction list either, though we do have a new number one, which is The Late Show by Michael Connolly. Uh, he's known for the Harry Bosch novels. This is a series launch, and it's his first in quite some time. Yeah, it's been about a dozen years. Uh, the Lincoln Lawyer was his last series launch. So um, very nice to see him taking a new tack. Uh, our review says it's excellent. We gave it a starred review. And the title refers to the midnight shift at LAPD's Hollywood division, where there is a, a detective who's landed there in retribution for her filing sexual harassment charges against her former boss. So she's investigating a couple of crimes while also dealing with LAPD internal politics and culture. Uh, our review says that this is classic Connolly, uh, including a protagonist who's smart, relentless, and reflective. Uh, there's big evil out there, says uh, one of the, the characters. And we say that's Connolly's great theme. And once again, he delivers. So definitely one for the uh, mystery police procedural fans. A little below that, number nine, The Breakdown by B.A. Paris. We also gave this a star. It's a second novel. Her debut novel last year was Behind Closed Doors. We say this is another first-rate psychological thriller uh, about a school teacher who takes a shortcut home on a dangerous lane in this little Red Riding Hood sort of way. (laughs) and ends up encountering a woman who's about to be murdered. 
And he said, tension quickly builds to a crescendo as uh, the protagonist begins to worry about her mental state. Um, they announced a first printing of 300,000 copies. Uh, sounds like that's going to be borne out. Um, this is a very strong work and clearly getting some attention. Yeah, and her first one did very well, too, both mm. in hardcover and paperback. At number 20, uh, with Meddling Kids by Edgar <laughs> Cantero. Uh, and uh, we say this is a goofy, smart love letter to childhood adventure and enduring friendship. Uh, and, uh, there are four kids uh, who used to be, uh, had formed a, a summer detective club uh, in their small town. And 13 years later, they're not kids anymore, but they're still thinking about the Sleepy Lake monster. So this sounds like a, a Scooby-Doo sure sort, of, sort of setup, um, but there's uh, there's actually much more to it than that, though there are many references to Scooby-Doo. There's a river called the Zoinks. <laughs> uh, there's a dog who's as much a character as the humans, and they have pitch-perfect chase scenes through an underground mine and a haunted mansion. We say that uh, the prose is fast and funny, and the quirky, lovable characters are absolutely irresistible. And there is an actual supernatural element for those who uh, always wanted to see some Lovecraftian tentacles <laughs> in invading the Scooby-Doo milieu. So this looks like a lot of fun. And uh, finally, at number 23, Look Behind You by Iris and Roy Johansson, uh, Mother and Son. And this is their fifth novel in the Kendra Michaels series in which an FBI special agent visits Kendra, who's a music therapist with heightened senses, and asks for her help with an investigation into a series of bizarre killings. It would not have occurred to me to write a thriller series about a music therapist, but <laughs> um, the Johansons are clearly pulling that off. And uh, we say that a long list of well-developed suspects makes this one of the more complex and satisfying entries in this best-selling romantic suspense series. So that's what we've got on the hardcover fiction list. Summer doldrums, indeed, but there's still plenty of entertaining beach reads for those of us who have just realized that our, our weeks for getting to the beach are getting shorter. Oh, don't say that. <laughs> um, there's also things going on on a couple of lists we don't always talk about mm -hmm. on, on the show. Over in Trade Paperback, we have debuting at number 24, the Glass Castle, the movie tie-in edition. Mm -hmm. uh, that movie is going to be out August 11th, and it adapts Jeanette Wall's 2005 memoir. The book actually pubbed a couple weeks ago and has been building up. Uh, it sold about a third more uh, this week than last week. Mm -hmm. uh, the conventional trade paperback from 2006 is still selling. That actually sold a few more copies than the new media tie-in, and that book has sold entirely more than 3 million copies since its release. So uh, one to watch out for. I'll be curious to see if the tie-in keeps climbing. I think it just might. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, I should say, so this is um, Jeanette Wall's memoir. People may not be aware. She had a pretty rough childhood. It's, you know, both of her parents had issues, but it's not uh, kind of a mommy dearest skewering book. It's, it's actually very affectionate and very affecting. Good to know. Uh, then over in children's frontless fiction, we have the first official novel based on the Minecraft video game called Minecraft the Island. And this is by Max Brooks, who uh, many people may know is the author of World War Z. And also the son of Mel Brooks, which I think he doesn't make a big <laughs> deal of, but he, he gets his comedy writing honestly. Yes. Uh, and, and Bancroft is his mother. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of a departure for him. He's uh, usually sticks to zombies, although I'm told zombies do make an appearance in this. I am not sure. a big Minecrafter, so perhaps this is par for the course. Uh, it is uh, aimed at the middle grade audience, which is about ages 8 to 12, but I suspect some adult Minecrafters might pick it up as well. Sure, why not? Well, thank you very much, Carolyn. Always great to have you on the show. And uh, I think next week, Mark will be back and you'll be off the phone. <laughs> but I, I really appreciate you coming on and especially talking about those lists that we don't always get to. It's always nice to have that perspective. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Seamus Amani discusses the tangled ethical questions around the end of life. We'll be right back. I'm Wallace Shawn, author of Night Thoughts. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today I've got Seamus Omani on the line. His new book is The Way We Die Now, The View from Medicine's Frontline. Seamus, I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you very much for asking me. 
So this title is very rich with nuance, and I'm particularly interested in the word now. We think of dying as something we have always done, but how is the way we die now different from how we used to die? Uh, um, the title is um, is a little nod and homage to Anthony Trollope, who wrote a novel called The Way We Live Now in the uh, Victorian era. I'll give you the precise year. So it's a nod to him. Um, but it also um, reflects, um, um, I suppose, how dying has changed in the Western world um, over the last um, 50, 100 years or so. Um, so uh, dying has now become very much a, a medical process. I wrote in the book about how, let's, let's say, in pre-industrial Europe, people died primarily um, at home. And medicine wasn't that important when it came to death. Gradually, since the, you know, the Industrial Revolution, the Enlightenment, and certainly over the 20th century, uh, when medicine first began to become effective, Death has moved from the home um, to the hospital. And where I live and work in Ireland, um, the majority of deaths now take place in uh, the type of hospital where I work, so acute general hospitals. And uh, only about 20% of people um, die at home and an even smaller number in a hospice, about 4 or 5%. So I wanted to write about... Um, uh, death from the perspective of where I was working um, and it seemed to me that there wasn't very much um, written about it from that particular perspective which is that of somebody working in, in an acute hospital. Yes, I was going to ask about that. You're a gastroenterologist and a surgeon, and uh, obviously that means you, you see a lot of patients at the moment of death, but most books on this topic are written um, if it's from a medical perspective, it's from a palliative care specialist. So, so you felt that there was a real absence of uh, the perspective on death that you have, that you have in that acute setting. Yes, I did. Um, and, and as you say, most of the literature that was out there when I started thinking about this was written by either palliative care specialists or, or gerontologists or geriatricians, as they're called, uh, on this side of the Atlantic. But yet when I looked at the figures and I thought about it, I said, well, most of the the dying is taking place not in the hospices, it's taking place here in the acute uh, general hospitals. So the job I do has two components. I'm, I'm a gastroenterologist, which is my specialty interest. I'm not actually a surgeon, I'm a, I'm, I'm a physician. So um I'm a gastroenterologist, which means I, I, I look after people with things like chronic liver disease, um, which has a very high mortality, probably a higher mortality than most cancers. And we've seen an exponential rise in the prevalence of chronic liver disease in this country and in the UK over the last 20 years, mainly due to um, increased alcohol consumption. So that's one part of my job. And the other part of my job is I do what's called general medicine, um, which I guess in the U.S. Uh, would be called... Uh, primary care. Well, not really primary care. That's more general practice. Mm. Yes, it's what a hospitalist might do or an internist. Mm -hmm. I, um, I do what's called general medical take, where a lot of predominantly very frail elderly people are admitted under my care with a variety of problems and usually multiple. So in my job, um, I'll do a lot of death and dying in relatively young people from liver disease. And I was seeing uh, equally a lot of death and dying in very elderly people admitted under my care uh, doing general medicine. And it seemed to me that there was very little out there from this perspective. Uh, the perspective of um, the palliative care doctors was entirely different. Uh, because by the time the patients are transferred to a hospice, to a palliative care physician, for example, their expectation and the expectation of their families has been, you know, pretty much altered as to what medicine can deliver and what it can do. Um, but in the, the job that I work in, um, people are admitted acutely with an expectation that 
I and the hospital and medicine is going to fix the problems. Um, and of course, medicine can't do that. And I felt that there was very little or nothing out there from the perspective where most of the action, if I can use that word, was taking place. So you write in the book that doctors might better help their dying patients by giving up what you call the quest to conquer nature and returning to a core function of providing comfort. Uh, a lot of doctors will find that very challenging because there is so much focus on um, medical science, on, on defeating death. Uh, how, how do doctors grapple with this in the acute setting that you're in? Okay, um... Let's, let's take the example, let's say, of uh, somebody I saw this morning, a 95-year-old man um, who has a combination of heart failure, kidney failure, uh, trouble with his bone marrow making him anemic. Um, it is um, highly unlikely um, and it is certain that I am not going to be able to cure this man so what is my role in his management? Um, I guess I should try and reverse anything that I can reverse, but pretty much all of what ails this man, I cannot reverse. However, what I can do is to protect him from futile interventions and futile tests and uncomfortable um, and dangerous treatments, but I'm not going to cure him. And I think it's important an important part of my job is explaining both to the patient and to the family that um, that's what what I can do, and I need and you know that we need to be honest with patients and their families in these situations. The majority of people now die in old age, usually after a long chronic disease, um, and. Very often we get to a stage where there is little in that chronic disease process that doctors um, and medicine can reverse. And part of my job is recognizing when that uh, has occurred, when uh, the patient has entered that phase, and being honest with the patient and with their families. It's entirely different, of course, if I'm dealing with a 40-year-old um, and there is something that I can do. I'll do absolutely everything that, that, that I can do. But the overwhelming majority of people now die in old age, um, usually after a long chronic illness. You also write about how doctors are affected uh, by being around death and the dying. And you say that unlike soldiers or policemen, doctors rarely admit to being affected by the horrors they have seen. Why is that? Um, I think there's um, there's been a culture in medicine sort of macho culture um, for many decades. Certainly it was the culture that I grew up in and trained in. I've been a doctor now for, you know, over 30 years, quite a long time. But when I was a medical student and junior doctor, there was a culture that you, you never admitted to fear, never admitted to uncertainty. You, um, you never admitted to your frailty. Um, I think that's gradually changing, and that's uh, that's a good thing. Uh, but certainly, that was the culture that I grew up and I and uh, I trained in. That um, you uh, you dealt with these horrors, you dealt with these things by usually a combination of gallows humor and alcohol. Uh, in was the sort of the culture that I that I trained in. But as I say. Uh, things are have changed quite a bit since I started out in the early 80s, um, and I think that's all to the good. So really what you're talking about here from both the, the medical side, from the doctor's side and the patient's side is, is more like emotional management, is talking about how doctors interact with the concepts of death and dying, how patients can be given the right expectations and sort of led to understand that uh, not everything is curable and, and medical science isn't perfect. Uh, how are you seeing that, uh, that shift take place? How are you seeing that play out in hospitals now? Um, I think, it's, I think it's, it's difficult because the overwhelming 
temptation uh, in contemporary medicine for doctors is to take the easy route and to avoid what I call the difficult conversation. So, for example, it's much easier in a patient with an advanced cancer to say, well, you know, let's have another CT scan and maybe we'll, do, we'll order another round of chemotherapy. It's much easier to do that than to sit down with them and say, look, and have the difficult conversation. Um, and there is the culture in certainly in acute hospital medicine is all about doing things. Um, and acute general hospitals where I work, there's an environment which mitigates against having these difficult conversations. And these conversations take time, they take energy, they take commitment. And very often in the frenetic sort of busyness in which we work, it's easy to, easier to dodge these conversations and you know, order um, another test. And I suppose what I, partly what I wanted to do with this book was to say to my peers, look, let's be more honest with our patients, particularly our dying patients, as to what we can deliver. Let's try to pull back from all of this intervention that we know is going to be futile. Let's try and be humane. Let's try and treat them as we would want to be treated ourselves. I don't know how successful I'm going to be, but at least... I've opened the debate there, I think. So how can doctors improve the ways they talk about the risks and benefits of treatments for illnesses such as advanced cancer? How can they have that conversation with with the patient? Is it simply a matter of stealing oneself and realizing that you've been avoiding this difficult conversation? Or do you have a particular specific advice for doctors who want to do better in that regard? I don't have advice about communication skills. No, I don't. What I have said uh, and what I have written is that there is a hesitation to be brave amongst doctors. And I use that phrase, uh, which I came across in a piece by a doctor himself who was dying of cancer, uh, a doctor called Kieran Sweeney, who was dying of a type of pulmonary cancer called mesothelioma, which has a terrible prognosis. Most patients are dead within a year of diagnosis. And he wrote a piece in the British Medical Journal about his own treatment. And he commented that he had no issues with the technical aspects of his care. But what he found disturbing was that the doctors had a hesitation to be brave with him. And I think that I use that phrase to describe the contemporary fear amongst doctors of being honest with patients and their families. And um, doctors feel afraid to have these conversations. And as I say very often, when you work in a busy, frenetic general hospital like the one I work in, you very often don't have the time, the silence, the peace to have that type of conversation. You're constantly rushing from one patient to the next. It's much easier to say, oh, yeah, let's do another CT than it is to sit down in a quiet place with the patient and their family and have that conversation. But that conversation is so important for that patient and their families that we, we really have to push ourselves to do it. But the entire culture and the ambience that we work in mitigates against that. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. I'm talking with Seamus Omani, author of The Way We Die Now. Uh, so you discuss working in England and Ireland. Uh, and in England, uh, you have the NHS, um, which uh, is socialized medicine that covers uh, all, all patients. How does end-of-life care change in that 
setting versus um, a setting, for example, in America where uh, coverage for care and access to care is extremely variable? Um, I haven't worked in the US. Um, I did work in the UK for quite a long time, uh, 14 uh, years. Um, in the UK, um, rather like Ireland, where I now work, um, at least half of all deaths take place in acute general hospitals. Um, the figures are very similar to Ireland, about 20% at home and only 5% in a hospice. I'm aware that there's a much higher percentage of deaths taking place in the hospice environment in, um, in the US. Mm. Um, but I'm also aware that uh, medical care across the US is very patchy and very variable, particularly if you're uninsured. I know it's a huge political debate for you there. Um, I, as I say, I can't really comment um, on US healthcare not having worked there. I'm aware of the various debates going on about Obamacare and so on, but um, I haven't I haven't worked there. Um, the NHS um, is. As someone once said, the nearest that the British have to a national religion, but it's kind of creaking and um, it's not quite um, the cradle to grave service that they envisaged when they started out in 1948. And one of the um, one of the uh, the things I wrote about in the book was the scandal at Stafford Hospital. Um, which is regarded as probably the greatest um, scandal in the entire history of the NHS. And most of that um, related to uh, end-of-life care. And I wrote about that uh, in a chapter of the book called How the Poor Die, because when I read the witness statements to the inquiry into the Stafford scandal, it reminded me very much of an essay George Orwell had written about his treatment in a Paris hospital in the 1920s, also called How the Poor Die. So end-of-life care in Britain has become a major issue. There is a perception amongst the public that it isn't good and that people are not accessing proper palliative care in acute hospitals. Um, and like Ireland, only a very small percentage of people in the UK die in uh, hospices. So um, speaking of culture and religion, you talk about that quite a lot along with philosophy. Um, mm. Do you feel that the, the secularization of society and the medicalization of death are entwined? And um, talk about rituals, end-of-life rituals. Yeah, um, I think there is a very close correlation between um, uh, secularization and the medicalization of, of death. Um, I grew up in a very Catholic um, environment and um, so the rituals around um, uh, funeral rituals in Ireland are still very uh, traditional and um, give a great deal of comfort to um, the bereaved and whether you're a believer or not, the ritual is incredibly important in guiding people in that immediate uh, days and weeks um, after death. And as secularization grows, people are left rudderless. They don't have that, that guidance. Some commentators have said that modern medicine has become sort of ersatz religion for secular uh, people. And I think there is a great deal of, of, of truth in that. Um, I wrote in the book, for example, about Christopher Hitchens, who uh, had made his name really as a, an atheist intellectual, but yet when it came to his own medical treatment, uh, he had an, what, I, I, what I thought was an almost religious belief in the powers of, um, of medicine, which was... Um, misplaced given the nature of, of his disease. But it shows the, how powerful the grip of uh, modern medicine has on the popular uh, imagination. So in, my, in our ancestors' time, 
people died at home, usually very quickly after a short illness. The priest was more important than uh, than the doctor. Um, now people die in old age, um, and doctors have and medicine have taken over much of the function of religion over the last couple of hundred years. So if we're talking about doctors doing less of trying to play God, of being more willing to admit vulnerability than we need uh, some ritual. But uh, for those like myself, for example, uh, who are not particularly raised in a faith, who are not believers, uh, what rituals might we still find meaningful and healing around the end of life? Um, I think one of the things uh, that's important is um, accompanying the dead and treasuring, not the dead, but the dying, and treasuring them. Um, I was asked to read a book, I sent a book recently uh, by a journalist called Kevin Toulis. He was raised in Scotland in an Irish family, an immigrant family. And his father, after retirement, went back to the island off the west coast of Ireland where he was brought up. And he became ill with cancer and subsequently died. He got pancreatic cancer. Um, and Kevin Tudor's wrote in the book about how all of his neighbours on this island um, came to visit him in the weeks and months running up to his death. They accompanied him. And Tudor was talking about Edinburgh, where I think he was brought up, where people shun the dead, they cross of the dying. They, you know, they they don't go and visit them. They uh, they find it difficult to know what to say. Mm. And yet, in this old kind of traditional way, um, people accompanied the dying and treasured them and talked to them um, and visited them. Now, I don't know if that's a ritual, but it's about being with them. You're not doing terribly much. And I've noticed this in my own professional work as well, is that there is a tendency amongst doctors that once a decision has been made that a patient is dying, for example, there's nothing more to be done. Doctors tend to not visit the patient very often after that because they feel there's nothing they can do, they've failed. And one of the things I've learned over the last few years um, is that if anything, you should increase the frequency of your visits when there's nothing more you can do. And just being there is very important to the dying person and to their families. And the families will tell you that later after the death, how important that was. So even though as friends and as families and as neighbors, there may be not very much that we can do, just calling in, just talking, uh, visiting, accompanying the dying is incredibly uh, important. Uh, I think in our sort of secularized, atomized world, the dying are sort of abandoned. They're hidden away in hospitals. People are reluctant to visit dying people. They're reluctant to call in to see them because they feel they don't know what to say. They're afraid of saying the wrong thing. I guess I would say Forget that. Don't worry about it. Just call in. Just being there is important. That's so beautiful. I'm going to take that very much to heart. Uh, it's clear that you've uh, spent a lot of time thinking about the philosophy of this, and you, you incorporate the work of other writers into your book, other people who've written on the subjects of dying and death. How did you go about researching that and, and working that into your book? These were people that I, I was reading for many years, so I didn't have to do a great deal of research. So people like George Orwell, Somerset Maugham, Ivan Illich, these were all my you know, literary heroes when I was growing up. So I didn't have to do a huge amount of research. All I had to do was, oh, let me just go back and see what Somerset Maugham thought about that. Um, and um, so it, it wasn't difficult in that way. Obviously, I had to do some more specific reading. Um, 
as well, but an awful lot of it was um, writers and books that I'd carried around in my head for decades. So this book, although it didn't take terribly long to write from a physical point of view, had been germinating. and The seeds of it had been in my mind for many, many years, if not decades. So all of the things I wrote about these great writers that I've mentioned were in my mind anyway, and it wasn't difficult. It was all there. So you said this didn't take particularly long to write. Um, has the writing bug kind of bitten you now? Are you thinking about other books, or is, is this one it? I don't know. Um, I still write regularly. Um, so I write a combination of things. I write for medical journals, which I've been doing for many, many years. But I write mainly about um, the if I can use the phrase, sort of non-technical, non-scientific aspects of medicine. I write about history. I write about literature. I write about um, the hinterland of medicine, the perspective of medicine. I write about those kind of things. You could call it the medical humanities, if you like. Uh, I also write about medical and scientific um, subjects for uh, an Irish literary magazine it's called the Dublin Review of Books. It's an online literary journal. It's out every month. I write regularly for them. So I, I'm, I write regularly when time allows because I work full time as a, as a doctor. So I snatch whatever time I can. And if I feel inspired to write about something, I'll write. I guess that's a good way to be. I'm not relying on it for an income. I only write when I feel moved about something or when I have a strong view I want to get across. So whether I'll write another book, I don't know. I think I probably will. Um, I'll write another book if I feel as passionately about a subject as I did about this book. We've been talking with Seamus Omani, and you can find his book, The Way We Die Now, in stores right now. Seamus, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much, Rose. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed takes us to San Diego Comic-Con. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Christopher Golden, the author of Ararat, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors, contributors. Today, PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed is here to tell us all about San Diego Comic-Con. Hi, Calvin. How you doing? I'm doing very well. Welcome back. Did uh, you get any exciting new t-shirts? Uh, I did. As a matter of fact, I think, <laughs> in fact I'm wearing one. You're wearing one right <laughs> Yes, now. yes. From Street Fighter. Uh, fame, yes. So, so how is San Diego? Tell us all about it. Well, you know, San Diego, of course, is is wonderful if you're a comic book or a pop culture fan, and it's also intense mm -hmm. uh, and exhausting if you're uh, part of the media. So, I've got the best of all possible worlds. Once again, a um, hundred and thirty thousand plus fans, and I say plus because you know the. Uh, uh, unlike a New York Comic Con, uh, the San Diego Convention Center is capped at 130,000 tickets. But everybody knows, sort of wink, wink, that how you define who comes and everything fluctuates. And most people, most industry insiders, figure it's more like 150, 160,000 wow. people in the building now. Now, the other amazing and intense thing about San Diego Comic Con is that since you can't buy a ticket anymore, it sells the tickets sell out in about an hour or two when they first go on sale. The the city and the show has basically turned all of the area around the convention into a gigantic carnival of pop culture. And and there are every square footage of empty space, there's some sort of Comic Con related or pop culture film related event ride. FX was camped out on the front of the hotel. I was in the, the Bayfront Hotel, which is right next door to the uh, to the convention center, and they had a virtual amusement park set up there. You name it. Um, then, of course, not too far away at the um, San Diego Public Central Public Library, there was a four-day comics and education and library convention that, that was packed every day. So I'm told. I didn't get a chance to get over there. So it's really a 
a a fantastic, spectacular, all phases of pop culture, including pop culture as it reflects itself in education and other areas. Uh, so, yeah, you don't even have to buy a ticket to have a good time at Comic-Con. Uh, so how do people who live in San Diego feel about it being turned into this spectacle? Are there locals who love it, locals who hate it? Well, that's an interesting response because the the local reaction, and I've been going to Comic-Con since the late 1990s, where it was still a gigantic show of 70,000, 80,000 people. But in comparison today, it seems like a quiet village. <laughs> right. Um, you know, you could you could still walk up on a Saturday, maybe not a Saturday, but certainly uh, any other day or a Sunday, without a doubt, you could walk up and buy a ticket. Mm. No more. But the, the 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 reaction of San Diego residents has changed dramatically to, you know, San Diego used to be the home for mostly trade shows. This is a, a an all out consumer show with with a trade component. Uh, and the, the city, as well as the residents, just sort of ignored it. I mean, the city was actually, ost- uh, you know, outright hostile because it was this notion that it was just a bunch of fanboys six to a room, right. um, you know, uh, eating, um, you know, uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and spending <laughs> all their money buying back issues. But, of course, uh, as the presence of Hollywood became much more uh, in- influential uh, in both comic books uh and now of course as exhibitors at the show that seems to have changed i'm not sure it was ever true but uh the city has recognized that first of all comic-con is an economic engine that brings hundreds of millions in dollars generates hundreds of millions of dollars in economic activity over four days um the place you can't get a hotel sure you know (laughs) i mean during the four in fact the biggest problem with coming uh to a Comic-Con may not be getting a ticket. It may be getting a hotel room, at least one within a reasonable distance. So um, the city, I also found that residents in the city, including some personal friends that lived there, completely ignored it. Um, and until I started going there and hounding them <laughs> about, this is, this is a global brand. Comic-Con is known throughout the world uh, as, the, as the ground zero for popular culture in North America. So... That's all changed. Now Comic-Con is embraced, especially since about three or four years ago. Las Vegas, Los Angeles, um, Anaheim have all made outright naked uh, uh, attempts to lure the show away from uh, San Diego because there are issues around the size of the um, convention center. Uh, they can't sell tickets anymore. You know, they're capped. And L.A., Anaheim, and Las Vegas – uh, they are basically throwing up the welcome wagon for it. Uh-huh. So the city seemed to get smart really quickly. Well, that makes a lot of sense. So I have noticed that a lot of the news that comes out of Comic-Con seems to be movie-related. What was some of the big comics news? Yes. Yeah, so as I like to tell people, you know, we're one of the few journals that actually cover Comic-Con as a publishing event. Right. And indeed, it is a publishing event. Well, uh, I would say in our story uh, that I wrote with uh, Heidi McDonald is, uh, um, you know, is up on the on the on the, on the site right now. Publisherswiki.com slash comics. Um, <laughs> uh, we we said that the 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 big story coming out of Comic Con was the lines. There were even, I mean, the, the lines to get everything were even more insane than normal. But we also mean book lines. We mean new imprints, new book lines, new releases. Um, the, the book format over the traditional American comic book periodical format is growing in the conventional comic uh, book industry. And it's actually uh, a rising um, um, format in the book trade, which, you know, 10, 15 years ago really didn't really see graphic novels as really a legitimate category. So this year we saw um, the launch of a middle grade graphic novel, uh, a new graphic novel line by Yen Press, which is a graphic novel published for for Hachette, an imprint for Hachette. But they launched a specific um, line uh, partially to to house the works of Svetlana Kimikova, who does um, her last book, Awkward, which is a middle grade graphic novel, uh, about these kids in school, and there it's a very diverse group, and they're all doing this, that, and the other thing. Sold two hundred fifty thousand copies, and you're seeing uh, uh, the boom in comics being driven by 
uh, by middle grade and YA graphic novels. So that's there. Then you're seeing even, uh, well, I won't say the big two, Marvel and DC. You're seeing DC really recognize that books are important. Um, they um, now they 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 offered up uh, some releases about Harley Quinn, the, the the classic character. She was the demented girlfriend of the Joker. She's become enormously popular. They're launching a whole series of book uh, of of issues that will be collected into books um, about Harley running for mayor and this year of the mayorly relationship, uh, mayor uh, the mayoralty election in New York City. But they also um, they've also launched. A mysterious young readers line that people have been talking about, and they talked a little bit more about it at Comic Con. And this is going to be tied to their superhero girls line, which is basically a whole line of, of superhero oriented, particularly girl superhero oriented stuff, books, merchandise for young girls that has been a huge success. So they're going to be doing different things uh, around this character. Uh, we also saw that Grant Morrison, who's kind of an acclaimed uh, writer of superhero comics for older people, he's he had a book this year about Wonder Woman, kind of redefining, this is being the year of Wonder Woman, redefining her origins. They're going to do a sequel to that, um, and they're also going to do some other things, uh, a line of of graphic novels that are be more mature themes, more like the superhero epics of um, the Dark Knight and Watchmen. So the sup- so the tr- traditional comic book industry realizes book format comics are bringing people into stores. Um, that in the book trade, um, we saw at ID well IDW is really a comics house publishing a comics house, but even they're an independent comics house that usually publishes non superhero comics. They have uh, – they published March, the uh, incredibly inspiring uh, book by John Lewis about the civil rights. Mm-hmm. So this year, coming off of a year where that won an, Ash, won, won an Eisner Award, they're launching a, a – they have a wonderful children's book called um, – it's called Home Time Under the River by Campbell White. And it's a beautifully illustrated hardcover edition book coming in the fall about these kids who kind of fall into a river and end up in an enchanted forest. I saw copies of it. It's really beautiful. Looks really interesting. I could go on. Well, I mean, that sounds <laughs> that sounds great. And like, there's a ton. And what about imports? Uh, I've noticed that friends who uh, used to be like manga, what's that, are now recommending Absolutely. manga to me. Well, imports on two fronts. Um, we're seeing a big growth of European graphic novels uh, mm-hmm. acquired and translated and and put into the U.S. Um, book into the book trade especially. Uh, why the the French love all kinds of comics and not so much superhero comics. Right. They have a comic book industry that is more analogous to the American trade book industry, where you have a wide range of genres uh, from you know fiction, nonfiction, history, uh, politics. You know, uh, romance, adventure, uh, and, and across the uh, across the board. So you're seeing a much more licensing of French material published here, uh, like by uh, Line Forge, which is a new publisher that has a, an imprint, Magnetic Press, that does specifically that. Um, on the manga front, I talked with the Viz Media Senior Director of Marketing, uh, Kevin Hamrick. Manga is doing well. Uh, Viz is doing well. They're up by double digits. They're um, putting more and more material into the library marketplace through Overdrive, through a digital format. Uh, but they've also got like the top new manga titles. They publish uh, Tokyo Ghoul, uh, my, uh, w- w- which is pretty much what it sounds like, you sure. know, you know mm-hmm. vampires in Tokyo. Uh, and another hilarious thing called My Hero Academia, which is a, which is a really comic uh, manga about – what if we lived in a world where everybody was a superhero? Everybody had a superpower, and then you happen to be a kid who just had a kind of lame superpower, or none at all. So it kind of it kind of uh, flips the uh, the scenario, and it's it's incredibly popular. So manga is doing well after some years of have of being uh, on a downward slope. It's been up over the last few years. Well, that sounds great. And did you get to uh, meet anybody exciting? Hear any good talks? See any good panels? Uh, let's see. Uh, well, you know, one of the most exciting things for me is the uh, Eisner 
awards. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, these are uh, what I describe as the National Book Awards of the comic industry. Uh, the, and the Eisner Awards, which is a gala event on Friday night, um, w- one of the things that has that also shows how this industry is changing and how diversity across a wide range of things, not just the background of readers or artists, is actually changing the comics industry. Um, uh, the top prizes, you know, best new book, um, they've, they, they used to, 10 years ago, they were almost all superhero mm-hmm. books. This year, while there was a superhero that won, a uh, book that won the best graphic novel, it was completely unlike anything in the past. Um, Jill Thompson won for, uh, Wonder Woman, uh, the true Amazon, a, a, a fresh retelling of the origin story of Wonder Woman, but done in gorgeous watercolors. Uh, and it really focused on the childhood and teen years of Wonder Woman and defined her personality. It's not anything like a superhero comic that would have won years ago. That was interesting. Number two, uh, a book that received three Eisner Awards um, by Sonny Liu called The Art of um, uh, Charlie Chan Hak Chai, an amazing fictional masterwork that it's actually a history of Singaporean uh, politics. Uh, uh, Sonny is Singa- Singaporean and cartooning history that just blew everyone away. There is no way that this book would have ever even been nominated, let alone won three Eisner Awards. And what you're seeing more often now is independent. In fact, that book was published by Pantheon, Penguin mm. Random House. Hmm. Also, a rather startling occurrence uh, at, yeah. um, at Comic Con. So the Eisners are transformed now. To reflecting the world that I think any book uh, book fan would recognize, as opposed to you know uh, you know the fanboy legacy that it has. Well, Kelvin, thank you so much for bringing us that recap, and uh, I'm sure there's tons more on our website uh, there is. that you you and Heidi <laughs> and other contributors have written about. We always appreciate you coming on the show. My pleasure. We'll be back next year. <laughs> and now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albanese, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another in-depth author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 